sex in a little bit of a lull right now. that. You don't got time sex. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson and Nick Springer on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. That video, or I guess since this is the radio, audio from uh, after the game, KU in the locker room, Jayhawks victorious 55-42 in overtime against West Virginia in Morgantown. What a game it was for KU. And how about that? KU was 13.5 point underdogs. They won by 13. <laughs> I was about to say, they almost, they almost covered the other way. Yeah. They almost covered the other way. But uh, yeah, a really incredible performance from KU. And my biggest takeaway was this. Getting down 14 nothing early would have been a death sentence for every other iteration of K football that I can remember in the last 10 years. Getting down 14 nothing would have been game over, turn the TV off, pack it in, whatever, right? But the mentality of this team, the perseverance of this team, the grittiness of this team was on full display. And, and I think that example of them coming back from that deficit also proves that Lance Leipold is clearly – move the needle on the culture and belief in this program and belief in the players and whatnot. Because, like I said, I I, I mean, every other KU football team that I can think of, down 14 nothing would have probably folded like a cheap chair, like a cheap lawn <laughs> chair in that situation, on the road, first Big 12 game of the season. And instead, KU, they fought back, and not only that, they, they won the game. Well, and they were down 14 points three different times. 14 nothing, 21-7, 28-14, still came back to win. What a win it was. We're going to break it down a bunch today. David Lesky is going to join us at 340. We've got some Lance Leipold postgame audio. Yes, we are going to get into the Lance Leipold Nebraska stuff because that has certainly been popular over the weekend here. And we do have to talk Chiefs a little bit as well with their victory over Arizona. The wait is over. DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app, is officially live in Kansas just in time for football season. That means betting legally on same-game parlays, spreads, money lines, and more anytime and anywhere across the Sunflower State. To celebrate, DraftKings is giving new Kansas customers a can't-miss offer. Bet just $5 on anything and get $200 in free bets instantly. And by the way, you're welcome if you took the Jalen Daniels over passing yards because that was done <laughs> by like the end of the third quarter, I want to say. He didn't end up that much over it. He had like 229 for the game. It was like 197. But he got there. I mean, the running game for him was was unbelievable. That would have been, I guess, the best bet because I think you could have got his over rushing yards at like 29 and a half. Yeah. It killed that. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code KLWN to get $200 in free bets instantly when you place a $5 bet on anything. That's code KLWN 
Only at DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook. Gambling problem? Getting help is your best bet. Call 800-522-4700. 21 and older, physically present in Kansas. Eligibility restrictions apply. Bonus issued as free bets. One early win token issued at opt-in. Moneyline bets only. Deposit and wagering restrictions apply. Eligibility in terms at DraftKings.com slash Kansas on behalf of Boot Hill Resort and Casino. So, KU takes down West Virginia and... Jalen Daniels is so good. I mean, that that's like such a boring way of putting it, but he is literally third right now in college football in ESPN's total QBR. He did everything for you in that game and more. Running all over the place. He led the team in rushing, had over 80 rushing yards in the game. He was efficient as all get up. He, you know averaged uh, seven and a half or so yards per attempt, which is a really good number for past KU quarterbacks. The three touchdowns, no interceptions, no big mistakes in the game. It wasn't a great game from the defense. It wasn't. Like, we can be clear about that. But, obviously, the defense did more than enough between the overtime period, and they did have a strong third quarter of play. Like, that was that was pretty key, although definitely aided by the muff punt by West Virginia. Um, it just... At... At like every point that KU needed a big play from the offense and from Jalen Daniels, it happened. That was that was so different than not necessarily what we've seen recently, but from everything we had seen for the decade plus before the Lance Leipold era, you wouldn't get those key moments, those clutch moments from your quarterback. You wouldn't get that resilience that you talked about being down 14 from the team. It was just, it was just different in a positive way. Yeah. I mean, to circle back to what, to what you said. Uh, yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. It was, it was, it was just different. And even from the fan perspective, like I don't think I was alone in this feeling of, of as a KU football fan and as somebody who has indulged in watching many KU football games, indulge is not the right word. I guess whatever the, like, Lived through, like, yeah, suffered uh, through through a lot of KU football games. I'm sure a lot of fans can relate to this feeling of KU starts to put something together, and then you have the patented KU football moment, the moment where just when it's there seems they're like they're right on the tip of something successful, in the most dramatic and devastating fashion, the complete opposite happens, right? And even with even with even last year with Lance Leipold. I imagine a lot of K fans still have those feelings, and I have those feelings quite a bit against West Virginia. And I don't think it was more encapsulated than in the damn high shot fumble at the goal line, right? It it, it sounds ridiculous to say this, but pre- previous iterations of K football, that ball would have been picked up and ran back 99 yards for a touchdown by West Virginia. I don't know that I, that doesn't make any sense. There's no logic behind it. I'm just telling you how it is, okay? And I'm and I don't I don't know if Lance Leipold is the curse breaker or what, but like those types of plays. That happened for KU. The muffed punt for West Virginia. That's a play that normally happens to KU. I mean, it like, did in week one. Exactly. It exactly. a good time not to have it happen. Exactly. Like, the the, the, the the patented KU football moment that it feels like any time in the, in the past couple of years where KU's had some success, it feels like then you're just waiting for, I find myself guessing, like, okay, how, what's, how is this going to go wrong? How is this possibly going to spin into something terrible, right? And... It didn't happen. The offense was resilient. They were fantastic. Jalen Daniels was incredible, both with his legs and with his arm. And we talked about it 
in the week leading up to the game that the difference between Jalen Daniels and J.C. Daniels was Jalen Daniels brought another level of running ability to the KU offense that J.T. Daniels for West Virginia did not bring. And that, that proved to be maybe the difference in the game, honestly. Jalen Daniels rushing, that might have been what pushed KU over the edge in the game, right? So it was just, just an incredible game. And, yeah, obviously there were things that did not look great. But for KU, their first 2-0 start since 2011, just enjoy the moment, man. Just enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, it's not just the first two and zero starts since twenty eleven, like you were talking about. But gosh, when's the last time KU was one and zero in Big Twelve play? You know, I I don't know the answer to that. You probably have to go back to like two thousand nine. Would be my guess there. Um, I don't know, maybe I can't remember. Maybe twenty ten, two thousand eight, somewhere in that range. And it's just this this budding excitement with it happening so early in the season that like. Man, can we start talking ourselves into KU flirting with with bowl contention? We'll we'll get to that a, a little here, but um, you're talking about, I think what is probably the, I don't know, it, it's weird. Like it, it's hard to discern. Like what's the bigger win, the Texas win or this win, right? Because the Texas win was certainly important. At the end of the day, though, in year one, if they wouldn't have won that game, it still would have kind of been about, like, what can the staff build to and all this stuff. The game on Saturday was kind of the stamp of approval on this year's team that they have turned it around from last year. And we don't know what this means moving forward. They could still be a three-win team. They could still be a four-win team, right? But clearly this team is up to Big 12 caliber once again, at the very least. And that's exciting. That should make games more competitive. That means that they're going to go into a lot more Saturdays with an opportunity to win a game. The Texas win, I kind of view it as like that was the arrival of the Lance Leipold era, right? That was the moment when it was like, okay, here's some proof of concept. The West Virginia win on Saturday was the proof that it's working right now. Like, that was the statement that this program and this team specifically are ready to, and and I, I don't say it, like, lightly. I'll, like, I, I don't want to just say, hey, now they could compete for a bowl game just to say it because what would be the, the point of that? Well, I mean, Derek, I, we, talked, we talked about it. Listen, the good news, there's good news and bad news. The good news is most of KU's winnable games are early in the schedule. So the fact that they've had this successful start to their season, beating West Virginia, if they can ride that, I mean, they are st- they're staring four very winnable games in the face. Yeah, Houston, well, Duke, TCU, Iowa State. Three of them are at home. Yeah, yeah. I, I, to be clear, like I'm still not picking them to win six games, but like the point with that win is that I think that's the proof that that's the type of team that it could happen to, or that the idea there is that. You had to win that game if you were going to be a, a possible bowl team or that you finally kind of saw the proof of concept there of everything coming together in terms of what it could look like, especially offensively. Again, like you go back to how well Jalen Daniels played. They were so balanced on offense. You had over 200 yards rushing. You had over 200 yards passing. You didn't have any of the big mistakes. You didn't turn the ball over. Jalen Daniels is legit. I, I think I'm done with that. The conversation we had all offseason with like how well he played at the end of last year, it was like, 
man, he had such a high QBR, he would have been one of the best quarterbacks in the Big 12 based on the small sample, but it is still a small sample. Let's see what it looks like. And then it was, could he even be a top-half quarterback in the Big 12? And if he is, it's going to lead to all these wins. I'm kind of ready to move past that conversation. I'm kind of ready to just put the stamp on it and be like, Jalen Daniels is a top-half quarterback in the Big 12. Remember, that was his fifth start against West Virginia. His fifth start. And, And that's the thing. It still is a small sample, but like, if you pass the test at literally every start, and yeah. it almost feels like every start, it, it grows. Last time he played West Virginia, he had the two red zone interceptions. What does he do this time? He's nails in the red zone. You're talking about KU was so money on the uh, big play downs. I mean, 11 of 15 on third down in that game. You know what that gets attributed to? Like, yes, of course, there are certain plays where you converted on third down that are running plays. But a big reason why there are certain teams that are good on third down and there are other teams that are not, and that KU has not been good on third downs in years past, yes, uh, KU has been in a lot of, in years past, like third and long situations. That's not going to help either. But it's because you're quarterback, man. Because when you're facing a third down, when you're facing whether it's third and medium or third and long, you need a good quarterback to make a good decision. Do I run the ball? Do I throw the ball? Do I fit it into the window here? Do I take the shot up here? Do I... I don't know, like, there's so much that is on the quarterback's shoulders in those third downs that when you have a good one, it is such an advantage on the key plays of the game. And that's what you see when KU was in the red zone, when KU was on those money downs. That is the difference of having that guy. And we go back to the quarterback-coach duo here. It's hard, if you have a good quarterback and a good coach, to not be competitive. You know what I mean? Like, how often have we ever gone through football history, whether it's the NFL, whether it's college football, and been like, man, I love their quarterback. They've got a great head coach, but that team stinks. It never happens. You can point to situations where it's like, oh, yeah, things didn't go their way and the defense wasn't good, and, yeah, maybe they were an average team. Like, you can be like, oh, Patrick Mahomes was on Texas Tech. They, they didn't make a bowl game. They went 5-7. and seven. But guess what? From the KU standpoint, if they go 5-7, and seven, that's their most wins in over a decade. So the idea that you just have the advantage of having Lance Leipold and Jalen Daniels, I think that's the biggest takeaway for me from Saturday. That is enough that you're going to be able to compete in some Big 12 games and you're going to even win some. And also, maybe we were too worried about the wide receivers. Luke Grimm yeah, made one of the best catches I've ever seen from in quite a while for KU. A contested catch down the field. He finished the game with six catches. Quentin Skinner had that touchdown catch. That was a tough catch in the end zone. Uh, I, I don't. I don't know the the receivers. We we had this discussion where we were like, oh well, who's KU's go to guy on third down? Where's Jalen Daniels going to look for the look to throw on on third down? And I, I don't know against West Virginia. That just that just wasn't an issue. Mm-hmm. That just wasn't an issue. And on top of that, again to go back just to kind of reset here. In the off season, building up to the season. I think you and I both agree that we we said we probably said we probably have it on record. Three wins for KU would be considered a successful season this season, generally speaking. Does that change with the win against mm. West Virginia? If the, if this team so, goes three and nine, are you still calling it a success? Well, to be clear, like what I was saying was, if they get three games, I just didn't think it would. Like I didn't think it was going to be a success in terms of like, oh, this was a huge success. No, it, I agree. A mild. It was success. like mild, yes, right? Right. A mild, like between like three wins would be mild success. Four wins would be like, okay, this is definitely a success. 
Does that change? I mean, so it depends what happens. If it's like at the cost of like, oh, they had to deal with all these injuries and clearly they were a better team when they were healthy, then yeah, you can you can kind of be okay with that. But I do think because of how that would finish, like at this point, that would mean you would have to go one and nine the rest of the way after what you've showed. Yeah. It wouldn't be a disappointment to go three and nine again, like bigger picture. But given how this is started, yeah, I think it would be a little a little bit of a, a, a disappointment just in terms of your expectations now if they didn't win four or more games. Which is pretty wild to think about. I mean, think about how close KU is to winning three straight Big 12 road games. If yeah. you uh, you have the TCU game where they kick a field goal at the end to win the game. Otherwise, you would have three straight Big 12 road games. After having not had a won a road game in 11 years? No. Like, how, that's, that's remarkable what Lance Leipold has done. It is absolutely remarkable. This, I don't know. Like, if, if Kansas goes... Because now you're seeing like like Jalen Daniels uh, popped up Dennis Dodd. He, he put him third in his uh, <laughs> Jalen Daniels for Heisman. Yeah, his Heisman vote. Which yes, he has played fantastic football. But like, I'd vote for him. I mean, as of right now, you could have a, a real case. But all, how do you if get they finish a- six and six? You know, or, or five and seven, or four and eight? You can't win it. Um, first of all, how do you get a Heisman vote? Like what? How do you get one? Yes, like who gives you? I don't know. The Heisman committee has certain. I don't know. Can, I don't know. Can, Something with the Heisman can, Committee. I, can you or I apply to get one? I do not know how that works. That is a great question. You should get a Heisman vote. There. I would love to have a Heisman vote. That way we, that way we can have two Jalen Daniels I votes. think they're afraid to give me a Heisman vote. <laughs> they're, they're because scared. they're like, this guy's going to vote something weird. Like Jalen Daniels. Because, hey, Dennis Dodd put it out there, so I'm just... Yeah, uh, that's true. That's not know, even that weird now. I'm yeah. just following along there. Yeah. Um, if Kansas goes... Six and six. Does Lance Leipold win Big Twelve Coach of the Year? I think he has to. I think so too. Like, I think if they go five and the seven, the only way that he, I don't think he would would be if like, like let's say that like a you know Kansas State went eleven and one or Oklahoma yeah. State went twelve and zero. Oh. Like at that yeah. point, like you can understand, but it's it's good, man. And, and what the offensive staff did coming into that game. There was some talk in the offseason about KU maybe running a little bit of triple option, but it kind of got, you know, quieted yeah. down a little bit. I want to talk about that a lot more later on. Yeah, and we will. Um, and, and then they, they ran a few plays of it in the opening game, but they ran a lot of it, and that definitely caught West Virginia off guard. It, it reminded me a little bit of the uh, KU-Texas game where Brent Deerman took over as OC, and it just kind of caught, or even the the Boston College game where they were doing more of that type of offense than what they had shown, and it just kind of caught the other team completely off guard and now if you're West Virginia like we talk about well for KU to to move out of the basement in the Big 12 it's not just about you it's also about another program has to drop below you right well you just beat West Virginia who's now 0-2 they're on the I I mean at this point like it's hard to see Neil Brown surviving the season right they're gonna have a new coach next season after losing to KU like maybe we go into next season and we're and and people are picking West Virginia to finish last I think they should. I mean, I mean, think about it right now. Iowa State beat Iowa for the first time in I don't know how a hundred years. Official stat. Mm-hmm. Right <laughs> they beat Iowa, Iowa also has not scored a uh, offensive <laughs> more punts than points. Yeah, more punts than points. And then you have Texas Tech who just beat Houston, and you have TCU who also has a win. So West Virginia is unquestionably the worst team in the Big Twelve at this moment as we sit here, and I don't see how they're gonna be not that by the end of the year. Yeah. I, it was everything about that game 
It was fun to watch. It was exciting. KU came from behind. They didn't quit. There's some questions about the defense, which we'll get into here. But overall, how could you not be so uh, just utterly ecstatic about where this program is going right now under Lance Leipold? We have uh, Lance Leipold speaking with the media after the game. We're going to share that with you next. David Lesky will join us to talk Royals baseball from inside the crown coming up in about 15 minutes. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Nick Springer. I'm Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. We'll have plenty more KU football talk, a little Chiefs talk coming up in the 4 o'clock hour as well, but season's still ongoing for the Kansas City Royals, and we're joined now by David Lesky of Inside the Crown. Uh, David, Royals lose the series to the Detroit Tigers. It's interesting because the Tigers tried this kind of long-term rebuild and then this was the year that they were going to try to pounce. You know, they go out and they sign Javi Baez, and they're hoping some of the pitchers kind of break out, and it just it didn't work at all. So I, I don't know what their plan is, whether they're going to reset it once again or whatnot. But as you kind of monitor the, the progress of the Royals versus the Tigers in the battle of rebuilders in the AL Central, I know the Tigers just won the series, but... Overall, you've got to feel a lot better about the Royals right now and where they're going than where the Tigers, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, the the Tigers, um, the, their best pitching prospect, who's not a pitching prospect anymore, but was Casey Mize, just had Tommy John. Um, so he's, I think he's out all of 2023, probably, maybe he comes back late in the season. Uh, Tarek Skubal, who showed some promise this year, um, is out. I, I can't remember what his injury is. He's not Tommy John. So I think that they're expecting him back in 23. Um, Matt Manning, who was their top prospect before they drafted Skubal and Mize, has had his moments. He looked okay on what was it Saturday against the Royals. Um, but he hasn't been good. I mean, it's... They signed Eduardo Rodriguez to a to a five year deal that got universal praise for some reason. I'm going, why why did the Royals get you know, I'm trying to think of the right word for radio that, that won't get you in trouble, but you know on for Ian Kennedy, Rodriguez was the same type of deal. <laughs> I mean, I, I, you couldn't expect there to be the personal issues that caused him to literally be unreachable for a couple months. The Tigers didn't know where he was at one point. Um, but that hasn't worked out in year one. Javi Baez, I mean, it's just, they're, they're, they're a big mess. And they fired their general manager, um, rightfully so. I think that, that that's not a surprise. And I don't know. I don't know. You look at Spencer Torkelson hasn't hit. Riley Green has come up. And funny people are, some I've seen have been disappointed with Bobby Witt Jr. And then you look at Riley Green, who was the number five overall pick in 2019 out of high school. And I think like the number five overall prospect this year when Witt was, anywhere between first and third, and Witt's been better than him. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, it, it's just it's interesting to see the thought process there. Um, yeah, the Tigers, they're in trouble. And I, I don't know what they're going to do, because now they've got some money tied up. They've still got $32 million for Miguel Cabrera next year if he doesn't retire. It's, uh, it's a bad situation in Detroit for them. <laughs> Okay, so that's, you know, at least one positive for the Royals. And they're, I don't know, almost limping to the finish line a little bit here. Do you think that 
Because we we have seen in years past where it's been the opposite, right? They they put up a, a strong month in September here, and then we we wonder if it's going to carry over to the next season, and it doesn't. That's not totally happening right now. Do you attribute that a little bit to maybe young guys? Is it the lack of off days and consecutive games finally kind of piling up and just leading to extra fatigue? What do you kind of make of the end of the season struggles for the Royals here? Yeah, a few of the guys, they look tired. I mean, you look at Brady Singer, who has pitched technically two full big league seasons. Um, one of them was 2020, where he made 12 starts. And and last year, he did have an injury that, that cost him some time. But um, and, and he pitched really, really well yesterday. But he's still throwing a lot of his sinkers are arm side and up. Um, and that's it's okay. You know, he's, he's, getting, he's gotten through it because... At some point, they're going to have to figure out how to pitch in September. Um, Chris Lewis has somehow figured that out in both of his seasons of this grade. and really good in September, weirdly. Um, but Daniel Lynch looks kind of tired. MJ Melendez, I, I think, has his bat seems slow this, in the last couple weeks. It, he got hot for a while, and then he just it seems like he's just down, which is not surprising. He's learning a new position in the big leagues and catching in the big leagues and hitting big league pitching for the first time. It, it, it's a lot on a guy. So I think, I think some of it is just getting worn down. I think some of it is, um, you know, they've, they've, they've got a book on these guys now. And so the opponents have kind of figured them out. And so now it's time for them to make that next jump. It may not happen until spring. Um, I don't know. It just, it's not that concerning to me. And, and maybe part of it is a lot of times I feel like strong finishes have saved some jobs that shouldn't have been saved. And so, there are worse things than a, than a team that needs to make some changes finishing poorly and making the changes not only obvious but actually necessary at this point. So, I don't know. I, it, it, just, it, is, it isn't concerning, but um, I mean, yeah, I, think it's, I think it's a combination of, of a lot of those things. We're talking with David Lesky of Inside the Crown here. You mentioned Daniel Lynch, certainly getting a little kind of tired out here. Uh, what is your worry level at all? Is there one? For Daniel Lynch, um, I, I don't know if I would say there's a worry about him. It's, it's, it's a hard, it's an interesting spot to be in because there are a lot of things that are, are to like about him. He he sought out to to get a little more extension on his fastball at the start of the year, and that has carried through just about every start. Um, he's he's getting almost seven feet of extension on his fastball when he was at like six and a half feet last year. I, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, so it might not be slightly off, but he's been better consistently. So that's carried through. Um, I thought his changeup in his last start on Saturday, he got rocked, but the changeup was probably the best I've ever seen it. And we don't talk about being with needing to, to work that changeup like we did Brady Singer, but I think that Lynch's fastball, which does get hit, more than it should. It looks like it should be better than it is. I think if he can use that changeup better, that changes everything for him, no pun intended. So that, that's encouraging. What's discouraging is it's the second straight year that he's worn down. Um, you might remember he was really good when he came back in July and through August last year. And then just, I mean, he was just done when September hit. And, and it was kind of understandable because of the 2020 season where he didn't pitch competitively at all. Um, I was hoping that he would be able to go through the whole season without looking worn down. Matheny, I thought, had a really good quote, um, I don't know, three weeks ago 
I'd never heard this before, and I, I love it that he says his jersey looks heavy on him. And so I thought, I thought that was good. Um, you know, at least word use. But um, yeah, I, I think that uh, I'm not terribly concerned, but I'm also concerned that maybe he'll never be able to pitch a full season without wearing down. So, but it's one of those things that you just, we're not going to know until next year now. And so it's it, it's um, I, I hope that he goes into the off season not just refining pitches, but also figuring out a way to to go thirty starts. You know, so, um, you know, along those lines. So um, I don't know. That that that's kind of where I am with him. It's a weird spot. Well, I guess the the flip side to this is is how well Brady Singer has looked. Uh, if I gave you over under .5 all-star appearances in the next two seasons for Brady Singer, what would you take? Oh, I'd take over. Um, yeah, I mean, if you look at his numbers, I'm sorry, I was just thinking about who else could, would be an all-star on the team. I guess it's Salvi. You know, the Royals are going to get their one all-star. It's probably going to be Salvador Perez. So I guess that, that makes it a little bit harder for him. But what he's done since he's been back from AAA, well, like a three zero. Six ERA, something like that. Twenty-four percent strikeout rate, under six percent walk rate. Those numbers are not common. <laughs> you, you don't see that from guys around the league. This is these are number one starter numbers. Um, we talked about this. I don't think ace necessarily. So I don't think every team has an ace. He's the Royals' ace, um, but he has he has numbers that match up with all stars right now. And and I think that. Two things I really liked about him. One, we've seen him struggle in a couple starts and still gut it out and be and end up with pretty decent numbers. That that's always good. And two, you know, I know the Tigers' offense stinks, but they also put up 18 runs on 28 hits the two days before yesterday. And he came off a couple iffy starts and went seven shutout innings with one walk. I, you know, I, I when a guy is able to big league players can play well and there's not really like you shouldn't be surprised because they're talented it's it's what they do in my opinion after they struggle how they respond to that and in the past brady singer has not responded well to struggles and and this year i think uh, maybe it's the success he had before the struggles i don't know what it is but this year he's responded well to that and there is nothing about what he's done that makes me think he can't continue it next year. And if he does, if he puts up these numbers, those are easy all-star numbers without even the question. Uh, with with the final, I guess, few weeks of the season here, I'm trying to think. What we have three, three and a half weeks, something like that. What yeah, is it that yeah. that you're looking for out of these final three and a half weeks? Is it just continued progression from some of the young players? Is it just kind of individual moments? Because obviously, you know, from a team perspective, they could win every game in the last three weeks and, and they still wouldn't make the playoffs. And that would certainly be, you know, uh, I, I think maybe something telling that would lead you to believe something special could be coming for next year. But just in terms okay. of what you're looking for, I, I can't imagine a lot of it is going to be win-loss based. So what is it that you're mostly focusing on over these last few weeks? No, and, and I don't even – the results aren't even what's important, I feel like, over these last few weeks. It's, you know, Nick Prado, is, is he – well, one of his big issues is I feel like he's he's been caught guessing at the plate quite a bit. I want to see better plate appearances. He's got such a good eye that he's going to work walks even when he's struggling, so that's useful. But I want to see him kind of take a page out of Pasquantino's book, for example, and, and be able to foul a couple pitches off instead of 
oh, I was looking slider and it was a fastball. I'm going to walk back to the dugout because it was down in the middle. No, you, you got to be able to adjust to that. So I want to see, I want to see that in in action with, with all of them. I want to see Bobby Wood Jr. taking more pitches, not not or chasing fewer. I guess is a better way to put that. Um, I want to see MJ Melendez continue with his good at bats. And you know, I, I mentioned that he looks like he's a little bit worn down, and I think. I think you can see that he's still putting together good at bats. He's just having a harder time catching up with some stuff, which that lends itself to tired. I just want to see continued good plate appearances from the hitters, and I want to see continued competitive pitches from the pitching staff. Um, Chris Lubitsch, for example, early in the season, I mean, he was a disaster. I, I would say, I mean, this is just a shot in the dark, I would say a third of his pitches were completely non-competitive. And that, that, that's not okay. You know, you, you're going to have some, and it's going to be 10%, whatever. But I just want to see them continue to compete, which people don't want to hear that because they want to hear, oh, I want to see seven shutout innings every every time, like Brady Singer gave yesterday. But I think at this point it's, it's, it's about setting up the process for the results next season because the season's irrelevant now. It is, and they, 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 their play made it that way. It stinks, but it's just the reality. And so, yeah, that, that's, that's what I'm looking for from these guys down the stretch. And, you know, continue to do things that young players do. Like yesterday, maybe he made a throw. I don't know if you were watching or if you were, if you were tuning into football, but I think it was Spencer Torkelson doubled down the line. And it, it kind of rattled in the corner. Um, you know, the padding doesn't go all the way to the ground. So sometimes the ball will get caught in there. He, he still went out and got it, and he put a throw on the base that I think shocked Spencer Torkelson. Stuff like that. I mean, that, that's fun to watch. You, just, just seeing the tools that these guys have, that's what I'm looking for along with the approach because, yeah, you're right. If they win, oh, well. If they lose, oh, well. <laughs> Neither one really matters that much. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, obviously, beyond the, the Royals, there was the MLB news of, of all the rule changes that are going down, the bigger bases, the, the pitch clock, uh, the lack of shift. Do you like the new rule changes and and? Do you see it having any effect on any of the Royals players, whether it's team, whether it's individual, in either a positive or negative light for, for anyone? Yeah, I mean, the pitch clock I think we're all going to really like once it gets going. It'll be tough to get used to. Um, we're we're going to see a batter struck out because he's not in the box early enough, and that's going to make everybody really mad. But ultimately, once people once, once players figure it out, it's going to be great because it's, it's going to shorten games by 20 minutes. And it's going to... It doesn't, the time of game isn't what really matters, as you know. I mean, it's about the, the number of actual plays that happen. I mean, there was, a, there was a point yesterday in the game that the Tigers threw like 22 pitches and there was one ball in play. And that'll still happen, but it'll just be quicker <laughs> between those pitches. So um, I think that's a good thing. Um, bigger bases, I think, make sense from a safety standpoint. Um, the, the shift is, is obviously where the, the bulk of the arguments, I think, come from. And to me, I don't really care so much how many guys you have on either side of the base. One thing, I, I tweeted this out, but one thing I hate is the second baseman playing short right field. And, and you know, left-handed batter puts a perfect swing on a ball, hits a 105-mile-per-hour line drive over second base, and it's a 4-3 ground out. I hate that. I absolutely hate that. So that part I'm good with. Um, I understand you probably can't only outlaw that. But, um, you know, ultimately – I don't think the shift is going to change all that much in, in the game. I think people are going to be surprised at how, how little it does. People would think it's going to boost offense like crazy. Um, but, yeah, you look at some Royals guys. Michael Massey's had some balls taken away. 
Uh, NJ Melendez, I saw a number, he had nine hits taken away. I added those back into his numbers, and it raises his average like 30 points. So, you know, that, that that's a big boost for a guy like him. Um, I think the bigger bases in the pitch clock, Bobby Wood Jr. might steal 60 bases next season, is, is my takeaway from that. He's got, a, he's got a, what, an inch and a half or three inches less to, to, to run, which is seems like nothing, but it's with, with, with how close those plays are, it's not nothing. And knowing the pitcher can't step off after he's done it twice, I mean, he's, Witt's going to steal some bases next year. So, so that'll, that'll be interesting. Um, yeah, like any rule change, it's one of those things. It's going to be jarring, and then we'll be used to it. And in a few years, you go, oh, yeah, they didn't used to do that. I forgot. So that, that, that's what happens with all of them every time. Mm-hmm. All right, well, David, uh, who is I, – I guess we didn't have you on last week because of uh, – gosh, I always forget Memorial Day, Labor Day, whatever the day was. Um, Labor Day. Okay, there we go. Um, who is so – I, I don't know if you want to do player of the week in terms of the last two weeks. I don't know if you have two different players of the week or if you just want to do player of the last week. I will leave that up to you. Well, I'll give you both. I'm going to give you a player and pitcher of the last week. It's Salvi and Singer. Both had a very good week. Salvi at 381 with a lower on-base percentage than his average, which is – That sounds like a talent. TV show. Salvi and Singer. <laughs> I would watch that mm-hmm. for the record. Um and Brady Singer, 13 innings, 280 RA, 1-0 record. So that was a good good week. And then for the last two weeks, the, I, the only reason I really wanted to do this one is because it's, it was really surprising. Michael A. Taylor hit 342, 381, 605 the last two weeks. So he's, uh, he's hot. And uh, I, I, think he, I think he, you know, these, these prestigious awards that we give out every week, I think he deserves one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, this is, this is big. Hey, hey that's huge. That, uh, you know, raises trade value again, headed into the offseason. Yeah, get it, get it back up and running. I, I think he gets traded, by the way, but we can talk about that down the road. Well, there we go. Maybe conversation for next week. He is David Lesky. You can check out his work. Subscribe to his Substack Inside the Crown is where you go for that. David, appreciate the time as always, man. Absolutely. Thanks, Derek. All right, that's David Lesky of Inside the Crown joining us here with Nick Springer. I'm Derek Johnson. You're listening to RCST on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Chiefs talk next. Get to some more uh, KU football talk coming up here, including some Lance Leipold stuff coming up in our next segment. Kansas State Chiefs, though, they look pretty good. That was that was one of the more fun weekends of... I know there's some people who are like, oh, I would never root for the Chiefs. They're in Missouri. and But I think for the most part, most people what? who live here in Lawrence are Chiefs fans. But there are... Trust me. I've, really? Yes. Yes. That's a tr- I mean, listen. As a, obviously a, a, a KU guy, sometimes it's tough to actually go to Arrowhead to mm-hmm. a game because you'll see people with like those little car flags and on the right hand side of the Chiefs <laughs> and left hand side of the Tigers, and it's like, man, yeah. I don't know how to feel about that. But you know, today we're today we're buddies, you know. But but to just to not even root, like what? Yeah, man. No, like I I you know if you don't want to root for the Chiefs, that's fine. But I know there's some people who like get really mad about it when like. People from Lawrence are like, I'm a Chiefs fan. So huh. don't be that guy. If you don't want to root for the Chiefs, that's your decision. But anyway, um, for the most part, for most people who are both KU and Chiefs fans, that's about as fun of a weekend as you could ask for. I mean, obviously, oh, yeah. if, if you're just like, like the Chiefs winning the Super Bowl, if you're both fans, is going to supersede both teams winning a regular season game, even though it's just one. But if you're saying like a week where both had to have success, that's about as as fun as a 
Chiefs KU football combined weekend as you could have. Absolutely. Well, I mean, think and about at it. least in recent memory. I mean, I mean, think about it. Obviously, KU football. We know the struggles they've had mm-hmm. for quite a while. So it's not there. You don't. You haven't had very many weekends probably for for people that are our yeah. age at least. And the last time that KU football was like really good, the Chiefs were like not very good. Yeah, so exactly. Kind of cool that 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 happened. But anyway, uh, the Chiefs just oh man dominated the Cardinals really that from awesome. from the word go. There was one moment in time where it was like. Here's the Cardinals' chance to get back into this thing. It was yeah. when it was twenty to seven, and they actually had two two really kind of shots at it. It was twenty seven. They were driving. They were around midfield, and then they got stopped on the like fourth down and one or two, whatever it was, because yeah. Kyler Murray just didn't see the open guy. No, um, no, he like, he tripped. Is that what it was? Yeah, his okay. guy tripped out of the backfield, and then That's he right. turned and, and looked okay. away from went him. to the other. Guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. And he could have still. He actually could have still thrown it to mm-hmm. him, but he he looked away after he tripped. Yeah. So, but then they ended up getting the fumble from Juju. So yep. they had it at about the same yep. point in time. If they would have been able to get a touchdown there, they started with the ball in the second half. They could have made it twenty fourteen, gotten the ball back, and kind of did what KU did to West Virginia, which was be yep. down twenty eight fourteen, score at the end of the half, then get the ball in the second half, tied up. Now you have a new game. They kind of had the opportunity to do exactly that, but. The Chiefs' defense, man. I mean, we'll, we'll get to the offense here because that's obvious. You put up 44 points. Patrick Mahomes, oh, no, they missed Tyreek Hill. Five <laughs> touchdowns, no interceptions. Um, he looked amazing. They kept blitzing him, which is a dumb mistake. Uh, didn't seem to really bother them that they didn't have Tyreek Hill, all that stuff. But the defense, I don't want it to be lost because they made some of those big plays, and they kind of shut the door when you make a stop on that fourth Listen, down. I don't, I don't want to get too excited about the defense because here's why. The Cardinals were rolling out the fossil of A.J. Green <laughs> and some guy named Greg Dortch. I don't even know who that hey, is. Hey, Greg, Wake Forest. Uh, I don't even know who Greg Dortch is. No Wake offense Forest to Greg stud, Dortch man. fans out there. Mm. I don't even know who that is. After, yeah, put up and they had numbers at Wake Forest. They had Hollywood Brown also, right? Yeah. So I don't, hey, Zach Ertz. I don't want to get Zach Ertz. James uh, Conner. didn't play that much. Zach Ertz didn't play that much. He was he was in a touchdown though. Did have, uh, yeah, in the garbage time in the fourth mm-hmm. quarter. James Conner. So, are you going to make fun of James Conner, former cancer survivor? <laughs> I mean, you're just pooping on the Cardinals. Not, so where gonna, does it stop? I'm not going to make fun of James Conner. Okay, but anyways, to circle back, I don't I don't want to I don't want to extrapolate too much from this mm-hmm. and be like, wow, the Chiefs had the greatest defense of all time because the Cardinals looked bad. They looked bad. Kyler was bad. Their, their offense, we already knew going into it, their offense was hindered. No DeAndre Hopkins, no Rondell Moore. Yeah, do you think Zachary. Kyler is worse watching film? Like, he doesn't trust his uh, yeah, inst- I don't, instincts yeah, I don't as know. much. I, I don't know. Because, like, the one thing was, which you had mentioned it before, last week before the game, was the Chiefs struggling against running quarterbacks. And in the first half, there were some plays where Kyler just took off and got big yardage. But then he kind of stopped, and the, the Chiefs did a better job of containing him, and, and it worked out well. So, I think... From the secondary standpoint, I don't want to draw too much conclusions from this game. Uh, obviously, the question is with Trent McDuffie is he left the game late with an injury. I don't know what his status is for Thursday, which is concerning. But Keenan Allen's going to be out for the Chargers, so that makes it a little better, I guess, uh, for the for the Chiefs. But, yeah, so from the secondary standpoint, I don't want to take away too much. The front seven looked really good. Chris Jones had a great game. Collapse has played pretty well. But, again, they knocked down some passes, but you're playing a 5'8 quarterback. So like I don't again the I don't, size I don't really, difference was so stark when you would see him next to like Chris Jones. They're they're playing a five five quarterback. They're they're playing a five three quarterback. <laughs> so they're knocking down all these passes. You know I don't know what to take away from that. But but yeah the, okay the other thing I wanted to say was you were talking about how the Cardinals got back in the, got back got back in the game. The Chiefs under Andy Reid have been the kings mm-hmm. the kings of 
Yeah, they just it sit goes on to it. halftime, and you're like, "Wow, that was an awesome first half for the Chiefs. They played so well. Great offense. Defense was good. You look at the scoreboard, and it's like twenty to seventeen, and you're like, "What just happened? Like that? That's what I was. That's how I was feeling. I was like, "Okay, here we go. I'm gonna sit back. It's gonna be twenty to fourteen, and then the Chiefs are gonna lose. Are gonna go down twenty-one twenty once the Cardinals get the ball back after playing." objectively a fantastic first half. Mm -hmm. I don't understand how that happens with the Chiefs because it happens all the time. They'll go out, the offense is flawless, the defense makes good plays, and you're feeling great, and the scoreboard is like 20-14, to right? Yeah. They're only up by six. It doesn't make any sense. No, that's that's a very valid criticism that has happened to Andy Reid, and and now that you bring it up, because I I didn't even think about that. It happens, I mean, over half their game. Yeah, we we see it all the time. Yeah, like you said, they get up big, and then they kind of just become vanilla offensively. It's just like, we're just going to run it into the dirt, or we're going to stop being aggressive. We're going to... They didn't do that. It's not even that. It's just like, I don't even know how to explain it. Like, I don't... Like, again, offensively, the Chiefs played a perfect first half. Perfect. I don't think they could have done anything better in the first half besides the juju, besides the juju fumble, right? Perfect. And the defense played well too. And the Cardinals legitimately had a chance to go into half only down six. Mm-hmm. It does, and it happens. Like I, I'm telling you, if you really start paying attention in the first half of games, it happens all the time to the Chiefs. Yeah, I. And I don't. I don't know how to explain it. I don't know if. I don't know what it is. I don't know. I. I that was about as perfect a game as you could have, though. Um, yes. Yes. I love the, by the way, the kicker stuff. That was so much fun. That <laughs> might have been the most like entertaining part of the game. Harrison Bucker gets injured. Justin Reed comes okay. in, kicks the PAT. Could you believe when he, Justin, or dude, the Bucker fifty-four yard field yeah, exactly. goal? He takes like the guy no could steps. Barely, he can barely ridiculous. walk onto the field. Barely it, walk onto the field, and a, a standing yeah. fifty-four yarder. That's ridiculous. And then honestly, like it, it got me thinking because I could understand why. Okay, if you if you have a kicker who can do other things. It saves your roster spot. That would be very valuable. But Justin Reed, as much as he has the strong enough leg to be an NFL kicker, he's not accurate enough consistently to be an NFL kicker, right? Which is why you have Bucker. But in terms of just the kickoff... No, he was nuking that thing. Exactly. If if every we're ta- time he was why, kicking why ball. is he just not the kickoff guy to begin with? Because, <laughs> then, no, think about it. If, if you have kickoff coverage... Clearly, you are trying to tackle the kickoff yeah. returner. Yeah, an extra guy. Wouldn't you want? Yeah. yeah, wouldn't you want that instead of how many times do you see? Oh, all he's got to beat is the return or is the kicker. Now the kicker's a safety. Good luck beating him. So I, I don't know. I think yeah. even if Harrison Bucker is healthy, yes, have Dude, Harrison Bucker take the kick or the PATs, but bombs. Yeah, bombs. He should, he should be the, the kickoff guy. He just should. It just makes more sense. Yeah, that was awesome. But yeah, the offense. Uh, they just picked up where they left off from the preseason, where yeah, they the, just looked so focused. The, the fumbles, the only concern, I think, mm-hmm. was fumbling. You had two, Juju fumbled twice, and there was a mishandled handoff situation between Mahomes. Which I can understand that five. because he was playing, he was handing off with the wrong hand. Oh, yeah. Because yeah, that wrist. was concerning. The wrist situation is concerning. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't like that at all. No, but, that's not great because you're going to fall and land on your wrist, and that's probably going to be something because of that that's never going to be fully healthy this season. Yeah. And it's just going to always kind of be a nagging injury. So that's yeah. not great. And that that was the biggest, to me, the biggest downfall of the game. Like, yes, the turnovers, when you fumble that much, it's not great, especially when last year they had all sorts of turnover issues and you don't want to see that happen. But to me, it's just that Patrick Holmes took a lot of big shots in that game. Yeah, he did. He did actually. I mean, a lot of big hits. The Cardinals were constantly blitzing, which was certainly a decision because but I thought the O line played pretty. No, they well. did. It's just that the Cardinals were blitzing every play. So it's like if you're, you know, if 
With is, five offensive linemen, good luck blocking seven guys, but yeah. Mahomes is going to dice you apart, which he did, and Mahomes has been so good in his career against the Blitz. So it was stupid by the Cardinals, but on the other hand, they did beat up Patrick Mahomes a little bit. It was good to see him get out of the game okay, really outside of that wrist. Yeah, and all right, Derek, I've, I've been cooking this one up for a while. Okay. The offense is more dynamic without Tyreek Hill. So I think it's, it's less, like, there were less big plays. I guess it depends what you define a big That's play as. Kind of right? not true though. They had two. They had one walk-in touchdown, and another big play that they didn't connect on. But did they see? When I say big play, I'm talking like forty yards or more. The the Mecole touch the Mecole pass would have been a, a, like a fifty yard touchdown pass. Yeah, that would have been there. But like, I feel like that's the story of and listen, Patrick Mahomes to Mecole Hardman. We talked about so it so close. We but talked not about that. it on Friday or Thursday or whatever. I absolutely loved that they had plays dialed up for me, Cole Hardman, mm-hmm. deep down the field. I loved that. Yeah. I loved it. And and they were both they were wide open both times. There were two separate occasions. One was the touchdown, and the other one he was open as well, and Mahomes just overthrew him. So mm-hmm. all Miko needs to go all Miko needs to do is, is go to Patrick and say, Hey, listen, man, can you throw that like half a yard shorter? Because I'm not quite as fast as Tyreek, but I'm close. So if you can just throw it like half a yard, like just take half a yard off that, and we're gonna have touchdowns. So I loved that because there was a question of what Mecole's usage was going to be. And, and again, I feel like the Mecole discussion kind of went away uh, in the wake of the signing of MVS. And then you had the rookies come in, Pacheco, Sky Moore. Uh, Mecole Hardman, and this was affirmed to me after watching this game against the Cardinals, he is going to have a role in the offense. Mm-hmm. And, it's going, and it's not going to be a very small role. It's going to be bigger, I think, as the season goes on. Which I, I like that. I mean, he's he's he, for all intents and purposes, he's Tyreek Hill light. Uh, that might be too generous. Yeah. That might be too generous to him. But in terms of speed and what he what he's potentially could do, that's what that's basically what he is, right? Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, when I say Tyreek Hill light, I'm not saying that he's like anywhere close to Tyreek in terms of what he could do. But like, in terms of what he could bring in a in a small, let's see if I can say it. Let's see if I can word this correctly. In a in one facet of Tyree Kill's game, which was taking the top off the defense, Miko can do that aspect of Tyree Kill's game almost as good. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Like you can't you're, do you're not saying else. right. You right. can't do everything else. Right. But in terms of if you if you take Tyree Cole, Tyree Kill as a whole, and you consider the deep aspect of his game, Miko Hardman can can do that. Not quite not to the level that Tyree can, but almost. In terms of taking off the top of a defense, yeah, I, and then you you make up for everything else Tyree Kill does via Juju Smith and Sky Moore and MVS. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I think the offense is going to be better this year than it was last year. Um, I think the reason why, to me, the offensive line is going to be better this year. You just it, it's the same guys except you have yep. another year of work on you. I think Patrick Mahomes like. It's it's silly to expect that he'll never just get better. That he'll like he already was really good, and and yeah, maybe I guess when you set the bar that high as you know coming in and winning MVP right away, that's hard to be like, well, now you're going to be the MVPer, <laughs> you know. So it's it's hard to see from that standpoint. But he is like basically entering the prime of his career now, to where it wouldn't be wild if he like you know had an even better season this year than last year. And then, um, 
receiver-wise, you lose Tyreek Hill, but because of the unpredictability and that you can go to all these different guys, like we saw Juju be kind of the fe- the featured receiver there. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if on Thursday it's MVS or if it is McCall Hardman or you know you know somebody else. Like, and the other funny thing about it is watching the game live. Mm-hmm. Like Travis Kelsey made plays, but it didn't really feel like he was like you know just going off. Eight catches, 121 yards, <laughs> and a touchdown. Right. And that that and watching the game live, I was like, oh, you know, Travis Kelsey's just he's you know, he's he's fine. He's doing well. Are you kidding me? 121 yards and a touchdown and eight catches. That's mm-hmm. that's a that's a career day for most guys. Right. Which is just incredible. The consistency consistency that he's able to to have from that position. But I will say I also did love the usage of multiple tight ends. We talked about this also as well as Travis Kelsey is he's he's kind of an old man. He's, he's getting up there. OK. He and, produces. And he still produces, right? But Jody Fordson and Noah Gray are two young guys that I'm totally fine with getting those guys more on the field, especially, you know, in situations where like this, where the game is pretty well in hand. Let Travis Kelsey have some rest. We know we're gonna need him. We know we're gonna need him for the playoffs. The Chiefs know they're gonna need him for the playoffs and later in the season. So and Jody Fordson, I think, has proven to be a, a pretty solid receiving tight end. Noah Gray even made a couple plays. So that was really nice to see. And then also, I also wanted to mention the Clyde Edwards-Hilaire situation. I feel like in the past year or so, and then, well, maybe even further, maybe even longer than that, there has been this, for lack of a better way to describe it, anti-Clyde hype. Part of it is because he was a first-round draft pick, which is not really his fault. But there, ha- I think there has been fans that have been saying in the fan base, they don't like Clyde. We don't like Clyde. Clyde, whatever. This, that, or the other. Clyde had a great game. A really great game, actually. Not On the stat sheet, you're not going to look at it and say, wow, Clyde had a great game. But he was really good. And that's not to take anything away from what Isaiah Pacheco could bring or what Jarek McKinnon could bring. I, I just, I like that. I like what Clyde was able to do because, like I said, there has been this sort of anti-Clyde movement that has been, I would say, steadily growing because... Because what? Because he's not a top five running back in the league. Yeah, it was it, Chiefs, it was the tag on him. I it think, was it was you were a first round running back. Why are you not one of the best running backs? Because when you take him in the first round, that's who you expect to be. Which, yeah. on one hand, is a good argument for why you shouldn't draft a running back in the first round. But it is not an argument of why you should be mad at him. He didn't <laughs> like. What is he supposed to do? Hey, don't draft me in the first round. Yeah. I don't want as much money. I don't want as much security. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I also think that there's. The Chiefs fans have maybe become a bit spoiled in the sense of when you have a guy like Mahomes and Tyreek where you just you have guys that are the top three at their positions, at the skill positions, and then here comes a guy you drafted in the first round at the running back position that you suddenly expect to become that type of player. And listen, the reality situation is the Chiefs do not need a top three running back for their offense to be successful. They haven't had one, right? They don't, that, they don't need that. They just need a serviceable running back. I mean... Again, the running back position is in some ways less valuable in terms of eliteness, but it's it's still very valuable in terms of talented players, right? So you don't I don't think the Chiefs are really need Clyde to be a top three running back, do they? I mean you I guess you would enjoy I guess you would be fine, but it's not a requirement. Mm-hmm. No, I I don't think they need it. And I think the fact that they're gonna lean on multiple guys like yeah. Um, if you look at the the stats at the end, you might be thinking, oh, it's a, it's a clear running back share with Clyde and Pacheco got a bunch of those runs late and Jet McKinnon. 
But really, in that first half, it was basically all Clyde and then a few, like, maybe catches for Jet McKinnon. So, I yeah, do I mean, think he still Pacheco does had, have... Pacheco had 12 carries. I'm guessing... Most of those were in the... 10 of them were fourth in the quarter. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So, I, I don't think it's quite there yet that, that Clyde has to worry about anything, but I do still think that it's not going to be an overwhelmingly loaded majority for, for Clyde this season. But uh, like, I don't think so either. I, I, I think the Vegas over-under for his rushing total and, and rushing yards coming into the year was like 600 and something. I, I'd be very happy about taking the over there. I, I didn't. I should have. Yeah. Maybe you can get an updated one on DraftKings or something like that. But well, I mean, he only ran for 42 yards in this game. Yeah, but he only had what? Six, seven carries? It's uh, Seven carries, 42 yards, and he had three catches, 32 yards, yeah. two touchdowns. And closer game, he probably plays a little bit more. But all in yeah. all, yeah. Great start for the Chiefs. They got a tough one on Thursday night against the Chargers. We're going to get into some more KU football talk coming up here in just a second, and we're going to talk a little bit about Lance Leipold. Venue 1235 is a large climate-controlled event space with a catering kitchen, private suite, and a covered patio. This is RCST on KLWN. Depend on it. Welcome back in to RCST. We'll get to our NFL Monday overreactions, then some more KU football talk after that but some big news was had over the weekend we'll get to that in just a second looking for the perfect destination for your next social or corporate gathering venue 1235 has you covered located right off i-70 in five minutes from downtown lawrence nebraska lost to georgia southern or is it georgia state i don't know one of the georgias georgia southern. with an s in it What's okay respect on georgia southern's name Come no on. i'm telling dude the Sun Belt. Legit, man. Marshall, Marshall, Georgia Southern, App State, Georgia App State. Southern. We know Coastal Carolina. Obviously, Coastal. Is good. Dude, also, when did Marshall join the Sun Belt? It was just this year. Okay, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay, dude, that conference is legit. Is that is the Sun Belt better than the Pac-12? That on tomorrow's show. No, um, <laughs> but Nebraska after the loss fired Scott Frost, and the reason I'm bringing this up beyond Scott Frost, who has you know been kind of a fun. I don't know, punchline um, in the college football world and on this show, certainly with my college football playoff rankings. Bruce Feldman of The Athletic listed Lance Leipold as a candidate for the job. There are several other sites that have listed him as a candidate or several other, you know, college football national media members that have tweeted out, hey, here's some candidates for the job. Now, it's not just it hasn't been like, oh, Nebraska's zeroing in on Lance Leipold, but he's been pretty much a consistent name across the board no matter who you look at. And I should probably make note of this. It's not just that he's listed as a candidate on Bruce Feldman's piece of The Athletic. And Bruce Feldman, to be clear, is about as plugged in as as any, I would say, of the National College Football Writers. Um, He also had Lance Leipold as the picture on the story, and Lance Leipold also got more words devoted to him on his blurb than anyone else. Is that just me overreacting to something that, uh, like, he probably didn't even pick the picture of the story, right? It was like some editor who was like, oh, yeah. here's a name. Let me put it in there, right? <laughs> um, but I don't know. I, I guess it could be of note. Here's the here's the things that matter. The buyout is not a ton. A lot of times you see these buyouts. Like, I can't remember what the uh, Brian Kelly buyout was at Notre Dame, but it was a lot more than this. I remember Ed Orgeron's buyout was like 17. And that was to fire him, right? Yeah, Ed Ordron's buyout was like seventeen and a half million, I think. Yeah, it looks like uh, the buyout for like Brian Kelly to leave was seventeen million. Yeah, that's how much. That's how much. And then in addition to them uh, with Ed Ordron, although you know they're paying a big buyout for Scott Frost, I think that's over fifteen million as well. Yeah. Point is that the buyout for five million dollars for Lance Leipold is not a number that Nebraska would look at and say, "Well, we just can't have him. We can't pay <laughs> that." It also goes down to four million in mid December. 
again, Nebraska is probably sitting there going, we don't really care. We just want to get the right guy. We're about to be making $100 million a year in the Big Ten. We have boosters who are going to pay us, and they're just going to be like, hey, we don't care. We'll pay whatever buyout. But it's got to be even more appealing that it would not be a buyout that would cost them, like a Brian Kelly, $15 million a year. So obviously there's other candidates listed here. I would imagine that from a Nebraska perspective, because of the age, like Lance Leipold nearing 60 years old, and because of maybe it doesn't have as much flash from like a booster perspective, it wouldn't shock me if if they have other coaches higher up on the list, right? Like maybe Matt Campbell is higher up on the list. Maybe a, a Mark Stoops is higher up on the list. Like maybe some of these guys are higher on the list. Um, but the question is, where does it reasonably go to who accepts the job? Because... If we're just looking at this from a Lance Leipold perspective, right, because there's two sides of this. It's would Lance Leipold get the job offer? Would he take the job offer? If we're starting with the side of would he get the job offer, you have to decide, well, how many coaching candidates are they going to offer before they offer him? Who knows? Maybe they would just say, we want to go to you. You're a guy that has ties here. We, we love what you've done at KU. What if KU does go like 8-4 and four this season? Then it becomes a little bit more obvious that you might want to go get a guy like Lance Leipold uh, as opposed to maybe someone like a Matt Campbell or whatnot. I don't know. But at some point, he is on that list. You look at Bet Online, he has 10-1 to 1 odds. He's not like in the top three or so of the odds, but he's certainly up towards the top of the running as far as that goes. The second part of it is would Lance Leipold take the job, right? I think it's impossible to know, obviously, and we have a Lance Leipold press conference tomorrow. I'm I don't sure know he's if... Get asked about it. Well, that's the thing. I don't know if anybody's going to ask because here's the thing. Somebody might ask because it obviously is a very pertinent question, and it's one that, yeah, you'd love to get an answer to. But what is Lance Leipold going to say? Well, if you remember right, when he got his extension right before the Tennessee Tech game, mm -hmm. he made a, a comment that was basically like, that might put some rumors to rest among you You think guys. that's what it was? Well, if you remember, so the Lance You're Leipold, right. He did mention that. Yeah, and the, and the, this, this discussion of Lance Leipold in Nebraska, this has been— this was started right. back when even Nebraska though Scott Frost just got fired, yes. it pretty the, much it was, after they lost to Northwestern, it yes. was like we know he's probably going to get fired. And Lance Leifold made a very specific and direct comment and said about the extension and said that might put some of your guys' questions to rest. So yeah, I don't, I don't remember exactly what he said, but he said something along the lines of you know something. You're like right. That. He said something like that. The thing yeah. that would get me though is that the one-year extension didn't raise the buyout, and it also. Like, okay, Lance Leipold is making, I think, two and a half, around that, two and a half million dollars right oh, now. Yeah. There's no question Nebraska could shell out Correct. major cash. So if you're Lance Leipold, here's why you would be interested in possibly taking the job. The ceiling of what Nebraska is has shown to be higher than the ceiling of KU. Now, you can make the argument that, yes, Nebraska's in shambles right now. He's getting things going at KU. Why would you leave that? Coaches don't view it as what is the program at right now. They view it as what can I get the program to because they're obviously betting on themselves because they believe they can do well. The second part of it is Lance Leipold spent over a decade in the area. Whether it was an assistant at Nebraska, I did have somebody comment to me and was like, wasn't he part of the Solich staff and Solich was unfairly run out, which he was. What if that would make Lance Leipold go, no, I don't want a part of it because I saw that firsthand, but different athletic departments and, and stuff like that. Um, his wife is, I forget if he's from or, or born in Omaha, to where they probably have family ties there. Now, you could also say, well, Kansas is, or, or Lawrence is only a two-and-a-half-hour drive from Omaha, so is it really that big of a deal? But 
there are a lot of reasons. Like, you, you know, he spent time in Nebraska, Omaha. He spent time in Nebraska. And then you add the money factor where, again, he is making maybe $3 million, $3.5 million. The, the contract money kind of goes up here as, as year to year moves on. Nebraska is going to be making $100 million a year in the Big Ten. They could easily be like, hey, Lance Leipold, do you want to triple your money? It might not be that much. Like, Brian Kelly got a 10-year, $9.5 million deal. So are they going to pay him more than what Brian Kelly got? Probably not because of resume, but they could easily double it. They could easily say, here's $8 million a year. And then when you add in all those external factors, it would be hard to be Lance Leipold and be like, hey, I'm not going to take the job. Yeah, from the Nebraska standpoint here, Lance Leipold, obviously, right now, today, mm-hmm. he has four power five, four wins at a Power 5 school. Is that something that Nebraska fans are going to be jumping at to say yes? Good question. Yes. I think that goes into the first half of the question, which is where would he come on the list of being hired, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, to your point, I mean, if KU goes seven and five, eight and four, mm-hmm. nine and three, like the best case scenario for KU here is that Nebraska zeroes in on somebody and hires them quickly. Yes. Like that's the best case because then you can basically just forget this whole conversation. Mm-hmm. Whereas the longer that job stays open and simultaneously, the potentially the more success that KU starts to have this season, that's only going to cause more friction in terms of that discussion. Yeah. I, I wonder if this gets the ball rolling on, because they literally just did that extension like uh, a week ago. I wonder if this gets the ball rolling on some donor seeing these rumors and being like, all right, we're not just extending, we're going to extend you another year and we're also going to give you a raise. Or, Each of these next years, we're giving an extra million or $2 million a year, and we're going to raise the buyout or maybe this thing. Some, Or maybe this, in, in a weird way, kickstarts the stadium renovation stuff, right? Sure. Like, hey, Lance, you know, we're going to build a What if it does the opposite, though? What if it's like, hey, we need to direct some of this money to paying you more money <laughs> so that you stay? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know. That's a good question. Um, So I, I, I think this is... This is tough because part of that, if you were to be offered, if you're Lance Leipold and you have all that stuff in front of you, it is hard to say no. At the same point in time, one of the things that he he mentioned when he came to Kansas and after he left Buffalo, because he was at Buffalo, I want to say six years, right, is that he said, uh, because he's not someone who you just look at him as being one of those guys who like jump ship. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, uh, he's not a Lane Kiffin where like, yeah. and, and I like Lane Kiffin. So this is, but like <laughs> Lane Kiffin, shots at Lane Kiffin. Remember, he he was at Tennessee for a year and then he left for USC, right? Yeah. It's it's not that, but it's like for all we know, Nebraska is one of his dream jobs, being there for so long. We I I don't know. It might not be. It might be. I, I'm not like reporting that. I'm just saying for all we know, right? Or it's it's one of the jobs that he's always had an eye on. I don't know. It could be. And it's hard to decline that, but at the same point in time, he might be viewing it as, back to the thing I was saying about Buffalo, he mentioned that he felt comfortable leaving Buffalo because he felt like he left it in good shape. He felt like he left the program in good standing, that it was a player-led program, that they they preached that and worked on that and developed the chemistry and the culture for so long, and that they were leaving it in a better spot than they took it over with. Obviously, right now, Kansas is in a better spot at this moment in time than they were before he took over. But if he leaves the program after just two years and a lot of those guys are going to transfer away and all the coaches are going to go and all of a sudden this stability that KU has finally developed is gone, they're right back to square one. So I wonder if that would be part of the conversation in his head of like, 
hey, I can't like if I leave this program, it's gonna really hurt the program more than if I were to leave in year four, year five, something like that. So like on one hand, it is a good thing that KU is getting, you know, KU's coach is getting mentioned in interest of other big jobs because that means that yeah. you're doing something right. It would just be such a huge setback for it to happen. And I, I would imagine that at least goes into the mind of Lance Leipold. But also, yeah. back to the idea of if you were to be offered a job, he would be weighing that. He would be weighing the idea of being paid more and, and all those things about having the ties to Nebraska. He would also, I would imagine, having be one of you know having him be close to sixty. He could be viewing it as like, this is my last shot to make that jump. Could be, yeah. And and I think if you're if you're a KU fan and you were expecting or hoping that Lance Leipold was going to turn around the Kansas program then you had to be planning on these types of discussions coming up. Right? Yes. Like this that like this is something that would be a sign of yes, the Lance Leipold has come in and turned around the KU program. What I what I would assume that most KU fans maybe were not expecting is that it would happen this quickly. It's and I mean I mean seriously, we're talking Lance Leipold has four wins at KU. Mm-hmm. Four. Right? What's his record? Four and nine four and ten? Four and ten at KU? It was about two and ten. Yeah, four yeah, and ten. Four and ten. Mm-hmm. Four and ten. So you probably weren't expecting these these types of conversations to happen this quickly. No. Which on one hand could be alarming, but maybe we'll just have to play, wait and see. But but yeah, I mean, yeah, obviously, I think like I said, most KU fans probably had to expect or assume that these types of conversations were going to be need to be had. Mm-hmm. But you were probably thinking they were going to be had in like later in year three or year four. Yeah. Well, and I guess I guess this does a couple things for me because the money part of it isn't just about how much are they going to pay the coach. The money part of it with Nebraska is also about facilities. It's also about how much NIL money are we going to have to bring in players and, and allocate that stuff. So I think a lot of um, pressure, I guess, honestly, comes down to the KU fan base. Like, seriously, to the point of the next home game against Duke, pack the booth, man. You want Lance Leipold to stay? And, and again, like we don't even know if he's going to be offered or if he would even take the job. But I'm just saying it would go a long way both toward building the program, toward helping the program, and toward, I don't know, in, endearing yourself with Lance Leipold. The more filled the booth is or the more progress they're able to make on those new facilities and on building the new stadium and on having enough of these funds for NIL. Like a lot of it does come down to, to the fan. Like I said, I don't know. He could not be offered the job. He could not even want to take the job. But it certainly wouldn't hurt if those things were to happen. So I think the biggest thing just for this moving forward for KU, you just hope this doesn't become a a distraction. You hope this doesn't become a weekly story. You hope this doesn't become something where you have coaches interviewing for jobs at Nebraska and it's taken away from the week-to-week and the game planning. And honestly, from a KU perspective, like you don't want to root against someone having success or getting a job that that he wants, if if that is the case for Lance Leipold. But also, you're probably rooting for like Matt Campbell or Matt Rule or one of these other guys to take the job. You yeah. just are. I mean, that might be the biggest pot. If if Matt Campbell, who is the favorite here for the job, takes the job and it drops Iowa State down back to where they were before yeah, Matt that Campbell, would be best case scenario. then it's like a win win for KU, right? Because you kept your coach. And Iowa State maybe is worse, and you can jump ahead them in the program. So that that's probably the most ideal scenario for KU. We'll talk more about this coming up tomorrow just in terms of what repercussions could be if that actually were to be something that happened. Again, right now, I don't think you need to get your alarms worried or anything. It's just certainly something to keep an eye on right now. With Nick Springer, I'm Derek Johnson. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. <laughs> 
quarter till five. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Nick Springer. I'm Derek Johnson on KLWN. Some more KU football talk coming at the top of the five o'clock hour here. Our first NFL Sunday yesterday. It's Monday. Let's overreact. Time for our NFL Monday overreactions, which are even better, I think, the first week of the season because then you can really overreact. It's it's the full sample size. It's everything we've seen. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've got some juicy overreactions for you. Okay. All right. Number one, the Kansas City Chiefs offense in 2022 will be the best mm. offense in NFL history. Well, I mean, if you're basing it on pace, if they score 44 points a game, that is factual. Okay. They had they had 33 first downs, which is that that is a stupid number. It was they had a first down on once every other play. I, I think it was the highest percentage um, in a game since 2013, and I think that's indicative of what this offense is in in trying to be this season. Like, yes, ideally when you have Patrick Mahomes and what you were talking about with McCole Hardman, you can still have some some big plays. But this is going to be a team that is going to be able to, I think maybe more than in years past, hit you with those medium and, and shortcuts. Yeah. Because we saw that a lot last year. Like, they did take it sometimes. There were other times where they got a little frustrated and they... Well, remember, kind of, that, like, was, that was allegedly or supposedly the way to beat the Chiefs. Exactly. Was to make, force them to exactly. drop it down. And, and this year, like that yeah. first game, it looked like that's most of what they did. Yeah. Yeah, that was impressive. Uh, but will they be the best offense in NFL history? That's that's such a high bar. I'll yeah. say slight overreaction. I, I think the issue here actually is that in 2022, there are literally a billion ways to measure how you quantify the best mm-hmm. offense, right? So I think the issue the Chiefs are going to run into here is they might be the best offense in XYZ stats, but maybe not in whatever. That, I mean, literally... It's there's so many different ways you can track offenses. You got EPA. Let's let's whatever, go with points per game. Stuff, you know? Just simple points per game, if you're right? Looking strictly at yeah, if you look specifically at something like points per game, I think they definitely have a chance to be the best in NFL history. Well, here's the bar: 2013 Broncos averaged 37.9 points per game. That's a lot of points. 2007 Patriots were 36.8. That's, a lot That's of the best of the Super Bowl. The other bad news for the Chiefs here is they play a very difficult schedule. Yes. So, oh, man. Reading off 37 points a game, that might well, be a little bit of an overreaction. Is, so it's tough to because, like, so the Chiefs from 2018 are actually third on this list at 35.3 points per game. Okay. And you could say that, yeah, well, Patrick Mahomes, four years older, four years wiser. He's yeah. better now. Absolutely. You can make the argument they could be better than that team. You get the one thing, back in. I'm buying back in. Yeah, but the one thing that team had that I don't think this team has, or I guess the one thing that this team has that that team didn't have is a defense that's not horrible. So, like, you uh, might have games, you know what I mean? Yeah, you might have yeah. games where it's 31-17 as opposed to 31-28 to where in the 31-28 game, you still got to go. Whereas in yeah. the 31-17 game, you might be kind of just running the clock out no, or this game, you might have more possession. the Cardinals, they were still kind of running the clock out and they put up 44. Yeah. yeah, I guess, I mean, this team has a better running game than the 2018 team. So, again, I don't think it's, like, that crazy that they could end up having the greatest point per game season because they flirted with it already with Patrick Mahomes. I would just say slight overreaction because to put that expectation is is very gaudy and very difficult. Okay. All right, here's here, here's a good one. The Cincinnati Bengals are going to finish last in the AFC North. Okay. Well, they're already in last right now. So, <laughs> again, if we're just, you know, prorating it out, that's correct. Um, 
I'm going to say this is an overreaction because I think the Browns are not going to be that good. Like, I, I think the Browns are still going to be like a seven or eight win team, at least on pace. I don't know what, what the deal is when Deshaun Watson's going to come back. I honestly still think the Bengals are better than the Steelers. The fact that the Steelers forced, what was it, five, six turnovers or five yeah, turnovers? Joe Burrow had four picks. Yeah. Okay, so they, they had five turnovers. They had a blocked PAT. They had a missed Bengals field goal, and they had a one of the the uh, interceptions turned into a pick six. Yep. They still only scored 23 points through overtime. That offense for the Steelers is so bad. I had I had the Steelers defense in fantasy. Was, Probably great week, right? Yeah, it was good. Yeah, it was very good. But the, the offense for the Steelers is so bad that like they're going to end up <laughs> yeah. not being that good of a team. So. Yeah, I mean, that, well, see, this this is where I don't... But mm-hmm. see, this is where it could be true, though, because think about this. The Bengals played atrociously against a Steelers team that is hapless on offense, mm-hmm. and they lost, right? So yes. if they continue to play poorly, then they're going to finish last in the AFC North. Yeah, from that standpoint. I mean, it is worrisome the offensive line did not get better. They invested like $60 million looks, in it. It looked like they got worse. Yeah, it did. So that's that's not ideal, but no, I, I don't think they're going to finish last. I, I did okay. have the Ravens winning the division, so I don't think they're going to win the division. I, I think both Super Bowl teams are going to have a uh, sizable step back, but no, I'm okay. not going last. All right, how about this? Kickers are the most important players on the NFL teams. <laughs> uh, false. I think Justin Reed is is living proof of why not. Okay, but you had like a bunch of games where kickers were the like the critical thing that won or lost the game. Most just of them about like Steelers lost Bengals. it. We just talked about Steelers Bengals, Saints Falcons, Colts Texans, mm-hmm. Giants Titans. Yeah, and you're talking about a lot of these cases are like they messed it up. So, like, in the Saints case, they made it, but exactly, the Falcons uh, missed exactly, it, or the that, Titans missed that, it. Exactly. So, they lost mm-hmm. the game because the most important player on the team didn't do what he was supposed to do. No, this is definitely an overreaction. Um, but, but, there is at least some truth in the fact to this that, like, good kickers might be worth more than we're giving them credit to. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, like, think about it. We what's have four, Justin Tucker making? Like five million games. a year? We had 14 NFL games last year. I'm looking at five games that were literally won or lost by the kicker. A third of the NFL games played were won or lost by the kicker. How how yeah. Trent, how does that not make them the most valuable player on the team? Yeah, so like Justin Tucker's making six million dollars a year. He's you know renowned as, Browns, as the Panthers, best kicker, right? Steelers, Bengals, Saints, mm-hmm. Falcons, Colts, Texans, Titans, like, Giants. That's five games right there, and I think mm-hmm. I missed one. Okay, so this is interesting. Because it's never going to be more valuable than the quarterback or, like, defensive end or something like that. But could you make an argument that actually having an elite kicker is more valuable than having an elite running back? Oh, absolutely. Because if we talk about all the time that the drop-off from elite running back to, like, average running back isn't that much, but the difference between having Justin Tucker and not is winning the Steelers game or winning the Titans-Giants game. The Browns game. Right, and and being able to hit 60-yard or 55-yard field goals consistently, that has a lot of value. Well, and and the Titans-Giants game... And you're going to get to pay them less than an elite running back. It was a 40-yard field goal that they missed. It wasn't even like it was a long one. No. Yeah. I I mean, I understand. Listen, it's it's a bit facetious. But but no, yeah, it's Kickers are clearly... Important players. Mm-hmm. We're talking about a third yeah. of the NFL games decided by kickers. Hey, Rich Eisen says it. Kickers are people too. All right, Saquon Barkley will <laughs> win MVP. Um, again, overreaction because the Giants are still not going to be that good. They they were impressive. Uh, the fact that they beat the the Titans in Week One. 
I'm kind of out on the Titans this year. Like, I don't even know if they're going to be a playoff team. Titans are bad. I'm here to tell you, maybe that should have been the overreaction. Mm. The Titans are bad. See, that's interesting, too. I can get on board with that more than the Saquon MVP. Okay. I still think the Titans are going to be okay. I just don't think they're going to be good. Uh, Saquon looked very, very good, though. I will give you that. I just, like, in my head, an offense that's quarterbacked by Daniel Jones... That's further reason why Saquon's going to win MVP because they're just going to give him the ball every play. But, like, every offense ever that has a running back that puts up, like, elite numbers or big touchdown numbers or big yard numbers, they're a top half of the league offense because they have to stay on the field. They have to convert third downs at the quarterback. You don't think the Giants can be a top half of the league offense? I guess it's a chicken and egg situation because if if he's that good, then maybe. We've talked uh, about how Daniel Jones is probably a bottom five starter in the league. mm Mm-hmm. So if Saquon carries them to a top half offense, it'd have to listen, be like the Adrian kinda, Peterson season where he ran for whatever. I'm kind of surprised yards. you didn't take the angle of Saquon has not played a full season in like four years. Yeah. So I mean, that's he, probably the, the better. That's really, the health angle I think for Saquon in this situation. Yeah, I think it's an overreaction. All right, Green Bay will either be the best team in the NFC or last in the AFC North. So basically, it's one of two things. Because this is what happened last year. Last year, they got blown out in the opener, which is what happened this year. They, they ended up being the best team in the NFC, at least from, from regular season standards. Um, so it's one of two. We're not saying somewhere in the middle where it's like, yeah, they have flaws, but they could still be good. We're not saying, ah, eh, they might be average. We're saying they're either going to be, be terrible bad. or they're going to be the best in the NFC. Like, to be last in the NFC North, you got to be really bad. Mm. So Green Bay was both of our picks to win the NFC. Really? I thought, at least from the betting preview. Oh. Did, was it not yours? I think I it know. was, actually. I thought it was. Um, I'm looking, okay. I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking. Where? Oh, here we go. Yes, we did both pick hmm. Green Bay. Well, that's actually really sad. I will say, uh, I just I, I don't know who I would pick in the NFC if I'm not picking the Packers. Like, yes, the Bucks looked, the defense looked really good last night. Offense looked a little, eh, not so good, right? Jameis and the Saints? No. The Falcons aren't good. Um, like yeah, that's what they true. had to barely beat. Yeah, that's true. <sighs> the Vikings, the best team in the NFC. No, I don't even want to entertain that. No, yeah. Um, I'll just say Green Bay is still the best team in the NFC. It's just going to take them okay. some time to work out the kinks. No, this is not an overreaction. Okay. All right, rapid fire with your two quarterbacks. Better or worse, Trevor Lawrence. <laughs> Uh, slightly better, I guess. Okay. Yeah, I listen. The Jaguars are that team that they're just so bad that you just want them to win. You just root for them to win. Like I, there was not a bigger Jaguars fan in the country than mm. me <laughs> at the end of that game. Okay, I'm telling you, <laughs> if they're just one of those teams, you just you just feel bad. You just want them to win. So I, I don't know. I mean, he looked a little better, but uh, Trevor Lawrence. <laughs> I was the part, that I, the part of the game that I was watching was he just chucked it into like quintuple coverage. <laughs> <laughs> he got intercepted on the on the far sideline. Mm-hmm. So she <laughs> was interceptions and turning it over. I don't know if I can sit here and say that he got. I mean, I, they were in the game, I guess. So maybe better. I don't know. All right, Trey Lance. Mm. Better or worse than what? last year? Well, I guess um, yeah, incomplete. Kind of one. Okay, uh, better or worse than Jimmy, Jimmy G. G. Jimmy How G. about that? Jimmy G. Uh, I will say worse. I think Jimmy G is better. He did not. I get it. They, it was, you know, it was all wet and everything. But, like, he looked <laughs> he looked bad. They played in a monsoon. But, like, 
the Soldier Field was a lake in the fourth quarter. They were playing in a lake. It was, but the Bears are so bad. Imagine trying to play football in a lake. That'd be kind of a cool. If you, you can, you know, build your home field however you want. We're going to just draft true. a bunch of uh, professional swimmers. <laughs> we're going to build it on a lake. And we're going to play glorified water polo. Yeah. I, hey, I'm all for it. Um, no, worse than Jimmy G. Okay, I... I think I have to agree. I mean, losing to the Bears, mm-hmm. that's tough. Speaking of the Bears, Justin Fields. Yeah, uh, Justin Fields, uh, better than last year, I guess. The stats looked horrible, but I guess same thing for Trey Lance. Yeah, I, I again, they played in a hurricane. I don't really know what to take of that one. Uh, I'll say I'll say better. They won. Yeah, sure. Mac Jones? You know, I, I don't think he's better than he was last year. At least he didn't show it, but I think that he kind of is getting screwed over by the idea that, like, they don't have great weapons around they him. Have nothing. They no, have nothing. they don't. The offensive line looked horrible for them. They just got kind of beat up by the Dolphins. Like, I actually think he's better than, like, for instance, they played the Dolphins. I think he's better than Tua, but Tua has way better help around him. Last one, Davis Mills. I think he's the best year two quarterback of the bunch right now. Like, Zach Wilson obviously injured. We didn't get to see him. Yeah. He put up good numbers. They almost won that game. Davis Mills played the best of week one of any of the year two quarterbacks. All That's right. it for NFL Monday Overreactions. He's Nick Springer. I'm Derek Johnson. Two hours down, one to go. More KU Football Talk next. We're going to start doing my college football playoff rankings on Tuesdays. That's when the committee releases theirs, so uh, I'll be doing mine on Tuesdays moving forward as well. New favorite for the Heisman, though. I know we saw Jalen Daniels, you know, Dennis Dodd puts him at third in, in his rankings. Yep. Uh, new favorite is the cringing, cringiness? Is that a word? I don't know. Whatever. Uh, uh, the cringe of Texas A&M football. There was that oh, video that came out like yeah. a year or two ago when they were playing, I think it was like Mississippi State and the super cringe guy who they do their like speeches with the 12th man or stuff before. There was yeah. another one that came out. I watched that. It was bad. Yeah, for the Appalachian State Se- game. 70 seconds of my life, I'm never getting back. Yeah, it, was, it just makes you want to like curl up in a ball and, and never see anyone again. Um, yeah. And they lost Appalachian State, which made it better. So, yeah, most cringe college. Um, <laughs> you know, with Nebraska, it's like, hey, it'd be cool if they came back for the Big 12. Same with Colorado. But with like Texas A&M, it's like, oh, thank goodness. You're gone. Okay. Anyway, um, you should make a you should make a your rankings the <laughs> most cringiest colleges, most cringiest college. Obviously, A and M would have to be one. That's tough. I don't know who. I mean, I feel like Duke would have to be up there just for the Coach K factor. But now that he's retired, do they lose cringiness? True. Interesting. I don't know. I'd have to think this through. I hadn't considered that. There's something to this. There's something to this. We'll think it through. Uh, so KU takes down West Virginia on Saturday. They are now 2-0. They're 1-0 in Big 12 play. And just like we did last week, I want to break things down both offensively and defensively in this game. Again, special teams, I don't have a ton to necessarily break down. There was obviously the big play with the muff pump by West Virginia. And you really didn't have any gaffes special teams-wise. Those are great, but there's not really much more to add than that. Offensively, the biggest stat in the game for me, KU was 11 of 15 on third down in the game. They were 1 of 1 on fourth down. You put those together, KU was 12 of 16 on the biggest downs of the game. I talked about this earlier with Jalen Daniels. Like That is the big impact that you can have with good QB play. It wasn't all Jalen Daniels. Some of it is third down and short, you're running the football. But Overall, having a good quarterback is going to allow you to convert more of those big plays, especially when you need to, 
And that's exactly what he did, and KU wins that game because they converted more of those big plays. Through two games, KU is number one in the country in third down conversion percentage. 17 of 23, 74%, number one in the country. Mm. That's Next, that's next closest is 68%. That's well, it's like if you convert 50% of your third downs, like you're going to feel good about it, yes. right? Yes. So I guess that's... Does this scare you at all that there's going to be like a game of regression where they go like two of 15 just to get back down to like the norm? Maybe. Uh, I don't know, though. I don't know. I mean, they might be able to keep that up if they're, like I said, if you think about it, it makes sense. KU, they're leaning on their running game. They should be facing third and manageable situations more often than not, you would hope. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, then obviously you have a higher chance to convert third and four, third and five, third and six, then third and nine, third and ten, third and eleven, unless you're the Chiefs with Mahomes. Last so, year, the, the leader in the country was 53%. There were only six teams who were above 50%. But yeah, Kansas last year was, let's see, they were 86th in the country, okay. converting just about 37% of their third downs. So there's a that, doubling. So if you're, if you're above like 45%, you're really good. Really good. Yes. So that's that's the mark you kind of look to moving forward. But they are So from that standpoint, you're it. probably going to have some regression. Yes. But the question is, does the regression come like in a game where you're playing Oklahoma or Oklahoma State and you lose, you know, 45 to 21 and you just have a bad game? Or is it going to come where like, you know, over the course of the next four games, maybe you just convert you're like 40%, 4 right? Yeah, like Every game 10, where yeah. it just slowly reverts down. Um, yeah. I'm not sure what you'd kind of prefer there. But, you know, we, we wondered who the go-to receivers coming into the year for KU were going to be. I don't think we learned a ton about that in the first week of the season. I kind of, my guess, was Luke Grimm. To me, that kind of added some support to that yeah. he's the guy. Now, like I said uh, earlier in the show, he made one of the better catches that I can remember in KU in recent years for KU, a really tight contested catch. I don't know if it was a third down play or not, but it, you know what I'm talking about. He was on the side and he jumped yes, up. Yes, I jumped thought up and it caught was. It. I don't know. I can't remember that was if like it was what, a, 20, 25, 30 yeah, yard game. I can't it was a big if it was play. A third down or not. I thought it was as well, but like it's one of those plays where it's like, man, that's a risky throw to have on third down and yeah. trust a guy with. And, um, and even Quentin Skinner made a great catch on, on the TD. That was a tough catch yep. in the end zone. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know if we were maybe too worried about the receivers or maybe we still needed to see more from them, but the first two weeks, the returns on the receivers are, are really pretty mm -hmm. pretty good. Pretty good. Well, I think, I think part of the equation here is when you have a quarterback who hasn't played a ton of games or is a, a younger guy, you would like to have experience and known commodities at receiver. But if you guaranteed that your quarterback is going to be really good, it's kind of the same thing with like Patrick Mahomes. Like put whatever yeah. receivers you want around him. Obviously, you'd rather have better weapons, and that's going to make it easier on him and make the offense better. But the quarterback makes the receiver more than the receiver makes the quarterback. So if Jalen Daniels continues yeah. to be this good, even if there is an experience at receiver, guess what? Guys are going to start getting experience, and they're going to you know, play really well like we've seen so far. So, yeah, I think I think they do have enough there. Like, it might not be the best receiving core in the Big 12, but they have enough to clearly be winning Big 12 games, which yeah. that's the goal here. Yeah. To me, the most interesting part of the offense against West Virginia and the part that I want to talk about probably the most is Jalen Daniels running the ball. Mm -hmm. The triple option, the designed run plays for Jalen Daniels. They didn't do it a lot against Tennessee Tech. 
it kind of came out of nowhere, clearly. West Virginia was clearly not prepared for it at all. We had mentioned it. We talked about how in the quarterback battle, Jalen Daniels, we would give him the edge because of his running ability. But I don't think – I mean, did you expect it to be that dramatic in terms of what he was able to do? And and this is something – the way – watching this game live, I read it as this was something that was deliberately and clearly in the game plan for Andy Kotelnicki and the KU mm-hmm. offense. And it was something that they clearly and deliberately did not show very much of against Tennessee Tech. No, no. There were a couple plays, right? But, like, yes. it was just one of those things where it's like, oh, okay, is this just something they're throwing in on the playbook that they'll do a few times a game? And it was a staple of yes. the game against West Virginia. And I think it worked super well. To, I mean, obviously it worked super well. But I think it helped keep a West Virginia defensive line that wants to be really aggressive and create chaos in the backfield. I think it kept them on their back heels kind of guessing a little bit. You're talking about a West Virginia defensive line that caused all sorts of issues for the Pittsburgh offensive line and running game. Kay didn't really have those issues. And, I mean, Jalen specifically was really good running the ball. We all know that how fast Jason Bean is and how good of a runner he is. And I think that that took away some credit to whenever we would talk about, like, in the quarterback um, competition – it would always be like, not that it felt like it was much of a competition this year, but it always felt like, okay, Jason Bean is the running quarterback and Jalen Daniels is the passing quarterback. But, like, don't get it twisted. This dude can run the ball. He had yeah. three rushing touchdowns last year in the limited amount of games that he played. And I think you saw the ability he has as a runner. I I knew that he was a guy who could move a little bit. I didn't expect to ever see a game this year where he had 85 yards. So that was nice to see. And... um. So it just is, worked super well because it allowed you to get all these different running backs on the field and, and kind of keep defenses guessing. So is this something that you think will continue? Is the, is this something that the KU offense is going to continue to run? Are they continue are they going to continue to utilize Jalen Daniels in this capacity week in, week out? I definitely think this is going to be a part of the playbook every week. Would it shock me if against Houston? Because I, I don't know. Let's say hypothetically they ran 20 triple option plays. That's just me throwing out a number. It could be way low, could be way high. I don't know. It wouldn't shock me if next week against Houston or this week, I guess, um, they only ran seven. And it's like, hey, we're we're just because that's that's what they talk about all the time, right? They want to be multiple. They want to have um keep defenses guessing. They want to do whatever is going to give them the best opportunity on that situation. And that if Houston spends all this time preparing for the triple option, and then all of a sudden this week you come out and you're running wide zone and power or you're running more of a spread scheme or, or something is kind of your primary, that wouldn't shock me. But again, because they are so multiple, it also and, and because how much success you had, you also don't want to overthink it. So it also wouldn't surprise me if they keep doing it and they build on it even more. So, like, honestly, I have no idea what the offense is going to look like moving forward. I I just know if it's successful, they're just going to be like, okay, cool. Yeah, that's what you want. Yeah, And also, Andy Kotelnicki formation watch, there was, I don't know if you remember that play where they had three guys line up in the backfield, and then they all went and made a little diamond, like, at the H-back position. Do you remember that play? Yep. I don't even know what the play was because I was so distracted by the formation, which I guess is the <laughs> idea. If you're a defender, you're looking, you know, you don't even know what happened. Mm-hmm. So the, the the different formations we're starting to see, I think that's going to continue, which is really exciting. And, and I, I agree with you. I, I think KE was now in a position where they could kind of evolve the offense in a lot of different ways, however really they see fit. Uh, the other interesting thing about this game that stood out to me was the, the, the situation with Daniel Highshaw and Devin Neal. I think we all agreed, we being, I guess, me and you and probably most other people watching KU, agreed that Devin Neal was RB1. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. and Kai Thomas was RB2 in preseason. That does not appear to be the case. Obviously, we from hearing from Lance Leipold and whatnot, we knew that it was going to be a rotation. But the fact that Daniel Hyshaw had the same number of carries as Devin Neal, I think, speaks to something, right? I think it absolutely does. Because it's not just that we thought Devin Neal was one and Kai Thomas was two. We thought it was going to be close to a split, right? And then, yeah, you're right. uh, Kind of a gap between, you know, maybe the next guys at three and four. And so it's, it's a couple things here. One, with Daniel Hyshaw getting as much run as he's gotten compared to Devin Neal, is there real conversation that Daniel Hyshaw could emerge as, like, the leading rusher on this team? I still think it'll be Devin Neal. But, yeah, yeah, it it definitely seems like to me that those two guys have cleared their way on top. And based on everything the the staff has said, it kind of sounds like it's one of those hot hand situations where if a guy has a couple carries and it's working well, they're going to keep feeding him. And so... I'm sure there will still be a game out there where Kai Thomas or Savion Morrison maybe does have seven or eight carries or something because they start to get hot and they they find a drive or they find a little bit of a rhythm there. The problem, though, with that is if you have not established yourself as the one and two, your leeway is going to be so much shorter to a point where, like, that happens. Kai Thomas only had two carries for four yards. So, like, who's to say that Kai Thomas, if he had five more carries wouldn't bust off a 30-yard run and then have other... But because you didn't do well with your shorter amount, whereas with Devin Neal, he could have his first three carries go for six yards, but he's going to have that longer leash where he could eventually break off that long one a little bit later. I I think it does look like it's developing that way, where it's going to be tough for those guys, barring maybe an injury or getting some long extended run for some reason, to all of a sudden be the guy. And I do think Daniel Hyshaw brings uh, a, something different running-wise than the other three guys. I, I mean, based off of what I've seen from the four runners, Daniel Hyshaw is the hardest runner of them all. I mean, power. he gets the ball, and he want, he want, he he's the type of running back that gets the ball and is looking to run into somebody, right? He's not looking to run away from anybody. He's not looking to duke anybody out. He's not looking to spin away from anybody. He wants to run into you, run directly at you, right? And the other three running backs from what we've seen so far from KU don't really have that, so maybe that aspect of his running style is more appealing to what KU is trying to do offensively for the time being, and that's why he's getting a little more run. But, yeah, I mean, he seems like the hardest runner of the four, which speaks to, I guess, what he's able to do and everything else. But, but yeah, it is it is interesting, and, and I do feel like this is going to be kind of a jigsaw puzzle type situation where it's just going to be each week the pieces are moving. Each week the puzzle's moving. It's like kind of this weird situation, mm-hmm. you know, where who knows, right? And from one standpoint, that could be concerning like you were talking about. From the other standpoint, like we were also talking about, defenses are not going to necessarily know. I mean, I, I'm I'm sure most guys, are, most defenses are going to say, Devin Neal, watch out for him. But maybe a couple weeks without Kai Thomas really doing much and Houston or Duke or Iowa State, whoever – not game planning for that ty- that style of run from Kai Thomas, and then he comes out and has a great game. It could be something like that, you know. So I, I don't know, I, and I think it, it's it's one of those situations where is it good or bad to have so many talented guys that you want to get on the field right now for KU? It's a good thing. I think it's always a good thing. Will it ever turn into something more negative? I don't think so, but maybe. No, the only way is a, a negative is if guys get unhappy and it affects the morale of the team or the room or anything. But I think what we've seen nowadays in college is that. 
it might not really affect the morale. It's just going to affect the morale of the one player, and he might transfer away. Yeah. So that's a conversation for maybe the end of the year. But, yeah, I think what we've seen in the past with Lance Leipold run teams at Buffalo and whatnot is that one guy kind of emerged as the guy. Second guy emerged as a guy is going to get a very heavy load as well. And then after that, there's there's maybe not like they still want guys for depth purposes, but Andy Kotelnik, he said it before. You want at that position a pair and a spare. That doesn't mean you're going to play three. Notice the word there for the third guy, a spare. He's there for depth. He's there in case of injury. So it does seem like to me that those two guys are kind of emerging themselves uh, from the group. A couple other quick offensive notes. We'll get to the defense on tomorrow's show. Um, we mentioned Quentin Skinner with the offense. Tanaka Scott did have a catch in the game, but the way Quentin Skinner's been playing, it's going to be tough for him to, to usurp him, at least right now. But the real MVP for me for the the offense, I don't know, it's hard to say the real MVP with the way Jalen Daniels played, but if we, we take Jalen out of the way, it's got to be the offensive line and tight end group. Um, offensive line gave up zero sacks. West Virginia had five against Pittsburgh. Offensive line only gave up uh, less than... Uh, they gave up less tackles for loss to the West Virginia defense than West Virginia had sacks against Pittsburgh. West Virginia also held Pittsburgh to under, what was it, three yards a carry at like 70-something rushing yards? Yeah, they had uh, like 3.7 yards per carry, I think. And meanwhile... KU ran for over 200 rushing yards at over five yards a clip. So the really offensive line, either. no, they didn't. They were incredible in the game. Uh, Mike Nowitzki graded out as the best on Pro Football Focus, and then Jared Casey and Mason Fairchild were a big reason why as well. They both graded out awesome in the run blocking game, and both of them had some big catches too. Uh, Jared Casey had the big fourth down on one that was squeezed in. Mason Fairchild had obviously the touchdown grab. That's the low key MVP there for the game. It's the offensive line and the tight end group. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like you said, the the turnaround from West Virginia from what we saw uh, against Pittsburgh to what they were not able to do against KU at all was very impressive. And and I think to go circle back to the the triple option and stuff, that part of it was they were just kept off balance all game. I mean, it didn't it didn't seem like the West Virginia D line was ever able to get into any sort of rhythm. KU did a great job with their play calling. They executed well. They drove off the ball. And again, the tight end situation for the Jayhawks proves to be the difference again. They've got some really excellent blocking tight ends that came through for him again. He's Nick Springer. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Some more Lance Leipold audio next.